Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, I have done it again. My Bible again. I, I think I. Yeah, it's not. It's not your fault. I. Uh, I think it's in my uh, zip-up binder out on my desk out there. I'm hoping. Well, if not, I know what I'm preaching, so let me go ahead and get started here, okay? So, uh, there was a point in the time in the history of Israel when probably many or most of the Israelites felt like, where was God? Uh, They had been in Egypt for 400 years. And uh, the last probably 100 years of that, maybe more, had been really, really bad. And, you know, they had the stories talking about, they, they remembered the stories of, of God and how they, he had brought his people to Egypt. And, but where is he, you know, and what's going on? Well, God, at the appropriate time, because he had prophesied this time period, it was going to be 400 years, and God uh, begins to show up in, in very miraculous ways. And it starts with Egypt, uh, excuse me, it starts with Moses in the wilderness seeing a bush that was burning with fire, and yet the bush didn't burn up. That's a miraculous thing. And God speaks to him out of the bush and tells him, I'm sending you to Egypt to bring my people out. So Moses uh, does that. He goes to Egypt, and we know the story that the Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, uh, wasn't having it. He wasn't interested at all in letting the Israelites go. They were using the Israelites for their own purposes. And, and so God begins to work miracles there. Ten plagues, ten miraculous, very powerful plagues. I think increasingly so to where Pharaoh finds, go, leave, go out. And, and Israel leaves Egypt. Well, after they leave, uh, Pharaoh has a change of mind, right? He has a change of heart about that. And uh, so he goes to pursue them. And it looks like, Israel, oh, there it is again, Eduardo, thank you. Was it back with you again? Ah. Thank you. He's a great son-in-law, isn't he? So um, Pharaoh takes his armies and pursues Israel, and Israel's like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And they're stuck. They're stuck. The Red Sea's in front of them, and... and, uh, uh, Pharaoh is behind them, and so God miraculously shows up with this huge cloud, looks like smoke, but it's fiery in it, and, and stops the Egyptian while overnight he has the Red Sea part, and they go across. And you remember when it, it, uh, the Egyptians tried to follow them through, the Red Sea came back, killed the Egyptian armies, and Israel is now free. They are in a different place, they, and, and they come to a place called Mount Sinai. And they're like three months into this thing at this point. And they get to Mount Sinai, and God shows up again in a miraculous way. Uh, and, and he calls to Moses from the mountain, and Moses goes up and talks to God on the mountain. And, and, but he comes back down, God sends him down, and says, listen, in three days, I'm showing up, I'm, I have something to say. Okay? Three days, something to say. And tell the people, you know, they, they don't dare come on the mountain, it's holy, uh, but I want you to bring them out to the mountain because I got something to say. 
Okay? So Moses does that. Three days he, he, later, they bring it, he gets the, all the Israelites out there. They're out at the mountain, and all of a sudden on the mountain, that, that cloud and fire and smoke, whatever, that they had seen in the wilderness, I mean, that had protected them from the Egyptian army, shows up again on the mountain. And the Bible describes it like a furnace. You know how, like a big fire, you know, it's going up. And who, I can't even imagine what it must have been like. You know, in the daytime, it would look like, you know, it talks about mostly smoke with some fire you might be seeing. But then at night, you see much more of the, the glow and the fire. Anyway, so God speaks to his people there. Just a, it's not long. And then after that, Moses goes up onto the mountain and God speaks much more detail to Moses. But God, the very first thing he says when he speaks to them, it says it was thundering and lightning and that the ground was shaking. Wow, what's he going to say? And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says this. He says, I, I delivered you from your enemies, your, Egypt. I delivered you from Egypt. And I brought you out of slavery into freedom. And then he says this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the very first thing he said. And he continued with what we know as the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. And as I, I looked at uh, the commandments again this week and, and, and realized that really each of those other commands is an expression of what it means to have no other gods before him. Okay, there's specific things, but the idea, if, if you are violating any of those, you're making something more important than God in your life. And so no other gods before me is where it starts. Now, uh, he made a big deal of this, didn't he? I mean, he made this presentation in a way that the people knew that this mattered. In fact, he talks about the people were so scared after the end of the Ten Commandments. He said, Moses, you guys go talk to God. We'll stay here in the camp. Okay? So, but he, so he made a huge No other gods before me. Now, now why? Why does God do this? Why does, and he has all these commands. And, I mean, and he's really serious about them. Um, why did he do that? Why all these commands? Well, first of all, let me make clear what it was not about. When God gives these Ten Commandments, and then later, lots of ways that they apply, uh, He did not give those commands so that if we would live by them, we could go to heaven. That's not what they were about. It was very clear that throughout all of Scripture, that there's no way that we can ever be good enough to earn our way into heaven. And really, if we, if we get down to brass tacks and look at each of those Ten Commandments, we can find and that we've, probably, we've broken them all at some point, either the, the letter of the law or the spirit of it. And Jesus summed it up. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. The first three commandments, loving God, the, the next seven commandments, actually, the middle one's kind of about loving God and loving people, and then the last four, five, are about loving people. But so we've all failed to measure up to those. And so there's no way that keeping the Ten Commandments can save you. We've all sinned against the Holy God, and God loved us so much, He sent Jesus into the world, His Son, God Himself, the Son of God, coming into the world, uh, living a sinless, perfect life, dying on the cross for us, and as He dies there, the, uh, somehow, how the Lord worked there, He paid the penalty for our sins. Isn't that good news? Amen. 
You know, I was thinking this morning, we were singing 10,000 reasons. Well, I got 10,000 sins probably in the first few years, right? I mean, it's, he's forgiven it all. And, and so the idea is that if we will believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible said he did, like he died for our sins, rose again from the dead, that we can then by faith receive Jesus as Savior. And that's how we get saved. The Ten Commandments are not about that. The Ten Commandments, two things it's about for sure. One is going to show us why we need to be saved. <laughs> okay? Because we're going to see all these things that we don't do right. So it reveals that to us. But the second thing that God is doing is he is really revealing their, well, like Jesus said, how do we love God? How do we love other people? How do we do that? What's that look like? And so he gives us these commandments. Now, I think sometimes people think this, and not a lot, but, you know, it's, it's, what's the deal? Is, is God some kind of bully? My way. My way. If, if, if I walked in here today and said, okay, look, I've, I've, I've held back long enough, guys. Here's the deal. This, this, and this. I expect from you, you better do that, or I'm kicking you out of the church. My way or the highway? Well, I don't think that'd probably last very long, but... I would be a bully, wouldn't I? A spiritual, spiritual abuse, all those things that we hear. Is that what God's about? Here's the thing. Well, we know that it isn't. But so what is the point then? And he gives us this way, starting with no other gods, and then he talks about all these ways we express them. What's that about? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is where the book of Deuteronomy kind of sums up all of what's gone on with uh, Israel coming out of Egypt and the laws and their experiences. And Deuteronomy kind of goes back and reviews all that and sums it up. And so there's, just, there's two verses in Deuteronomy that I think help us to see why God gave the commands. So let's look at them. He says, you shall therefore keep his statutes, God's statutes, and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Go to the next one. Observe and obey all these words which I command you that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So why does God give the commandments? Does this make sense? It's for what? For who's good? Ours. It's for our good. It is good for us to live these ways. And when we live his ways, it goes well in our lives. Now, just let me say right up front, that doesn't mean we don't suffer difficulty. That doesn't mean that uh, hardship never comes. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean you'll never suffer difficulty that God has not allowed for good purposes. You will never suffer hardship which God will not take and use for good in your life. But so the commandments are given for us and for our benefit. Because it teaches us how to live. Ways that are good and right. And we are blessed because of it. Now, if that's the case, shouldn't we be diligent to find out what God says about how we should live? This is the best way for you to live. Well, I don't care. Well, far too often we actually act that way, don't we? But the reality is, is here's what God has said. Here's the best way to live your life. And it's really, it comes down to, we've been talking about this, having a life worth living. 
This kind of living, when we live by the things that God has said, that is how when we come to the end of our lives and we stand before the Lord, that as, as he looks at our lives and evaluates with it, we, we have, hopefully, as we grow in this more and more, where he says, that was good. Well, this is good. You trusted me here. You believe me here. You live the way I said here. Let me show you what I did because of that. Right? And we, we, we had a life worth living. Not only did we have a life worth living, we had a life in the here and now that was the most satisfying. At a, at a deep down in your heart level kind of satisfaction, even in the middle of hardship. You know, my wife and I, in the early years of our marriage with, you know, stepping out to serve the Lord in the way that he's led us to do and, and we had difficulties and struggles. But, you know, I, I think she would agree with me, even though they were like, wow, how's this going to happen? We don't have money to buy the groceries. We don't have money to pay rent at the moment. What's, how's God going to do this? By the way, he always did it. Just not the way we always thought or when we wanted but he always did it. But the idea is, there was a sense of satisfaction that, hey, we are here doing what God has given us to do. And man, is that good. And what confidence that gives you to live. So it's, a, it's the best life now. So God has given you these commands. And, and so these 10 are, are really big. <laughs> And they, they, their tentacles go way out and touch so many things in life. Like I said, and Jesus summed them up, right? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we think about these, uh, as I looked at them this week, I, I kind of concluded, I think that the 10th one is probably the one that's the most deceptive when it comes to how we cannot live by it. And let me explain. The first three commandments about God, right? You know, no other gods before me. Don't make idols, right? And worship them, right? Make something. Oh, here, this is my God. I'll worship this. Uh, don't do that. Take my name so seriously. Take me so seriously that you don't use my name lightly, right? You know, uh, keep the Sabbath. I, you need to rest. It's for you. It's for your servants. And, and this is good for you. Do that. Then he says, uh, don't kill other people. Jesus amplified it. Don't hate other people. You know, uh, uh, it says don't commit adultery. Jesus amplified it. Don't, you know, be lusting uh, after others in your mind. Don't do that. He says, don't steal. And I left out the first of these. Don't um, be sure you treat your parents properly, right? Respect your parents. Show them honor. So don't steal. Don't lie. And the tenth one is don't covet. Now, that idea of coveting, you know, I'm trying to think. It just doesn't seem like a normal part of how we think and talk. Don't covet. Okay. All right. <laughs> What's it mean? <laughs> um, he says don't covet, you know, other people's money, other people's possessions, other people's spouses, other people's lands, whatever. And, and, but the idea is this, this, this coveting is just this strong desire that I want this. And I really, what's the first command? What was it? No other gods before me. And I'm saying, I want this so much that, you know, I'm considering that maybe I want this more than I want God, what he says. Because God told me to do it this way, but I want this. 
And, and so it's this idea of money and possessions and desiring to have it so much so that we, we set aside what God has said because of what we want. And the reason I say it's the most deceptive is, is this. We would say, yeah, you know, I mean, use, you know, using God's name in vain and, and stealing and committing adultery and treating your parents lousy and, and lying. You know, everybody says, even people who struggle with it would say, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> right? That's easy to see. We see that in someone who don't like it. But what happens in our society if someone, oh, man, they want money and they go after it and they get a lot of it. And then they buy a lot of stuff with it. How do we more naturally tend to look at that person? They are a what? Success. They are a success. And, and people even ask, well, how did you do it? Because we want to emulate you, because we want that. And so that's what I'm trying to say. This area, this money and possessions area, has the potential to be the most deceptive for us. And by the way, Bible says sin is what? Deceitful. It lies to us about what it can do for us. And so when we take anything, but we're talking about money today, money possessions, and when we let it take God's place in our lives, we have now forgotten or not lived as though we should have no other gods. That's what I mean by that. Well, where does our ultimate security come from? You know, I like to have a house and, and occasionally we lock the doors. That's, you know, why? Because we want to be secure, okay? Um, we want to be secure in our relationships with people. But the idea is this, is that if I start thinking, well, my security is in my bank account. And now, let me just be, let's be real open here, right? I mean, if, if, if I have money in the bank to fix my car if it breaks, that's a nice feeling, isn't it? I had lots of years when that wasn't the case. Okay, so that's a really nice feeling. But if I find my security in that bank account instead of in God, because God is the one who provides me what I need. You see what we're doing? What am I doing? I'm, I'm no longer trusting in God, I'm trusting in my money. And we wouldn't say we do that, but we can do it. And that's why I say it's deceptive. And so what have we done? We've replaced God with our money. How about our sense of significance and importance? You know, depending on how you grew up, you might struggle with the idea of feeling like you need to have money to be somebody. And if that's the case, and you let that become that in your life, guess what are you, what are you doing? You're replacing God with your bank account. And, and so you're, you know, this is the no other gods thing we're missing. Now, who's getting hurt by this? God? Is God getting hurt by the fact that we're replacing him? No, we're getting hurt. And we need to believe that. We need to believe what God says about that. That it's going to go well with you when you do the things that I tell you to do. And when you do them the way I tell you to do, with the motivation I tell you to have, it's going to go well for you. And even if you have troubles and difficulties in life, in the middle of all that, you're going to have satisfaction and a sense of purpose that I'm working. And don't, don't worry, I will work it all together for good. And so we're talking in this, this idea about a life worth living that, that passes the examination of Christ and is, is the most meaningful and satisfying now. 
that we need to settle some things. In the very first week, we talked about ownership. We're settling that. We settle the idea that there's a narrow way, right? We settle the idea that, hey, life has, there's going to be hardship living this way, all those kinds of things. And then um, we need to settle this area of our lives if we're going to live a life that's worth living. And that's what our money and possessions about. What does God have to say about those things? Because we want to glorify him in them, knowing that when he is the most glorified in our lives, we are the most blessed. So we want to focus in on this today, this idea of money and possessions. Uh, what's this about? And, and we got to settle it if we're going to have that life that we really want to have. So uh, let me, there are two, two concepts and one truth that I want to start off sharing with you here. The first one is the idea of what it means to be materialistic. Okay, materialistic means can, when you consider material possessions to be more important than spiritual values, things of God, um, many other things, more important maybe than people, those values that are consistent with Scripture. But where material things, and that could be money or possessions. And you say, well, I'm not materialistic. Well, hopefully you aren't. But the reality is that's always a pull at us, isn't it, in our culture and in our society? And those things can quickly become more important than they ought to be. Well, how do we keep that from happening? How how do we not be deceived by that and fall into that trap? You say, well, it's easy for me. I never have any money, right? You can have no money and be materialistic because it's what you're valuing and what you think is important. All right, so the other concept, and which is, is a biblical concept, is the idea of stewardship. Okay, and this is where we view our money and possessions differently. This is about carrying out the Lord's will in the Lord's way with the money and possessions he has entrusted to me. And we see that, that whatever I have is, has been entrusted to me by God, entrusted to me to use for his purposes, entrusted to me to use his way. And when I do that, what was the promise we saw early on in Deuteronomy? When I am a good steward, when I do think what he wants with my money and possessions, the way he wants me to do it, what happens? It goes well for me. It's, it's good. It's his blessing in my life. And not just physically or materially, but in my soul, it is good for me. So this is a biblical concept. We're talking about money and possessions. And we see then this truth. When it, talking about the lordship of Christ. No other gods before me. Lordship of Christ. Those are kind of the same thing, right? Jesus is Lord. So the lordship of Christ and how we see and handle our money are always intertwined. They're inseparably intertwined. And so one speaks about the other. If Christ is really Lord in our lives, then we're going to see our money as having been entrusted to us by God and want to use it the way that he he tells us to use it. If we let money have that role in our lives, then we're saying No to the Lordship of Christ in that area of our lives. And by the way, how big of an area in your life is money? I mean, even if uh, you aren't even materialistic, how big is money? Is money involved with most of everything you do? At some point, at some level? Sure it is, right? So it's a big deal. So it is something we need to get. and, And so the idea is we need to settle the Lordship of Christ in our lives about these things. So let's, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 6. 
on page um, 1117 in the Bible under the chair. And again, if you don't have a Bible with you, we really encourage you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. Pull that out and turn to page 1117. It'll help you uh, as we talk about these things. So this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been talking about lots of very practical, important things in our lives. And now he gets to this issue of money and possessions. So let's start in verse 19 of Matthew 6. It's Jesus speaking. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So understand, there's always a heart issue here when it comes to money. You can have all the right ways and know all the right ways, but your heart needs to engage with, I want to do it the right way. I want to honor the Lord. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. But he's saying here, obviously, invest in eternal things and lay up treasures in heaven. Does UPS ship to heaven? FedEx? Oh, it's Amazon, right? Yeah, no. So how do we get treasures in heaven? Well, it's, it, the way we use our money here on earth, there is, see, think about this. He's telling us that even though this is just money here on earth, that it has the potential, if we use it right, to also have eternal results. Not just now results, but eternal results. Somehow or other, God credits in heaven what we do here on earth. Very much grace. And then verse 22, he says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so he's using a physical example here of the idea of how does your eyes, how do your eyes work? Can you see? It's, it's like a lamp. Why do you turn a lamp on at night? So your toes survive, right? You turn a lamp on so you can see. And, and, and he says your eye is like that for you. It's like it enables you to see what you need to see. And he's saying if your eye doesn't work right, you're in trouble. But what he's talking about, because he's talking about in the middle of this thing about money and possessions. And I think what he's saying is how you look at these things really matters. Do you look at them in a way that applies the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet? Or do you look at it in some other way? And he's saying, if you do, you don't really see what you need to see. You're missing it. Okay, so it's important that we see these things right. And then he says this in verse 24. He brings it to this kind of a conclusion. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot. What's cannot mean? Means, oh yeah, cannot. You cannot. Serve God and mammon. Now, mammon is not a typical word that we use. Uh, it, it really means riches, money, and possessions. And uh, one place I was reading said that the word it came from, traced back to an Aramaic word, really means money and possessions that you trust in. And so if you are letting your money and possessions be what you trust in, you're letting it take the place of God, you're ignoring no other gods. Says you, you can't serve God that way. You're going to serve one or the other. 
And so you have to decide, don't you? In fact, let me say it another way. You will decide. You've already decided along the way. But we need to make a decision to serve God, not our money and possessions. And we need to settle this. So it's about the lordship of Christ, isn't it? That's what he's saying. You can't serve both. You can't serve God and that. You've got to make a choice. Choose. And so we're choosing not just the money possessions. We're choosing whether or not Jesus is Lord in our lives. And what's the test for whether or not Jesus is Lord? Very simple test. Jesus asked, he stated it in a question form in the Gospel of Luke when he said, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Okay? So this whole idea of selling no other gods before me, especially when it comes to our money and possessions, I can't let this take God's place in my life and, and set aside what God says to do that. And so what I need to do is say, Jesus is Lord. I want to do what he says. Well, what does he say then? How do we keep money from becoming something in our lives that God never intended for it to be? How do we keep money from becoming something in our lives that will rob us of the, the blessing that God says through obedience? How do we do that? Because it is deceptive. I mean, let's, let's just, again, be real open and honest with each other this morning. How many of you would say, I wouldn't mind it if I had some more money? And the rest of you are asleep, right? <laughs> okay. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But how do we keep that from sometimes becoming what it's not supposed to be? All right. So the Lord tells us a number of things. And, and this first uh, two, three things we're going to look at uh, are really where, if, if, if we engage our heart with this and do this, it will prevent money and possessions from becoming what they ought not be. Okay? So the first one is this. Give to God first. When you get money, it's time to give. How do you know when you should give? And I don't mean the hour and the day, but how do you know when it's time to give? You received something. You got some money. Money came in. It was yours to make a decision about what you're going to do with it. Proverbs chapter 6 states it like this. Honor God with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And this is really important in an agricultural setting. I mean, you know, we got you know, grocery stores and... Amazon will deliver it to you and all this kind of stuff. But in an agricultural setting, you know, how the crop does this year is really important, isn't it? It's going to depend how much you have to eat for the rest of the year. All right? And so the crops, you, you plant them, and then they begin to bear fruit, and the fruit comes in. Now, just natural thinking, say, I got I go, I to hang on to this and store this up because for all I know, a giant hailstorm's coming next week, and then what? All gone. And God says to his people in that situation, he says, no, 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 no. You give to me first. Yeah, but God, we don't know. He says, I know you don't. But who are you trusting here? You trusting your possessions or are you trusting me? And he says, give to me first. And it goes on down in the passage and talks about how God will bless because 
See, this right away, what are we doing? From the very beginning, we are saying, my money comes to me from God. I am trusting God for this. And so whatever he gives me, I'm going to give to him first. Now, how does this work? Well, what it means is that when you get your paycheck you know, it's every week or every other week or once a month, uh, or you sell something big and you make a profit on it or whatever, the idea is when you sit down and say, okay, what do I do with this money? The first thing you say is, I'm going to give to God. I'm giving to God. I'm doing that first. Well, I, how do I, boy, how, have you ever had, and many of you may still be there, you know, where your paycheck every week, you aren't quite, quite sure how it's going to reach what you need to reach? And God says, don't sit down and, and budget this all out and now see, oh, I can give this. He says, no, no, give first and then deal with the rest. Now, are we starting to talk about, hey, this is real stuff? That's kind of a big thing to do, isn't it? Think about it. And it really is going to show, do you really trust God? Is he, and he's really the Lord of your life. It's very practical. Okay? It really hits us where we, we live. We need to do this. And so we sit down and say, I'm going to give to God first. Now, this is combined with the second principle that we see in the scripture, and that's give to God proportional to your income. Okay? Look at, let's look at a couple of scriptures. This is Paul giving some instructions about how to give uh, to a particular offering they're having. But he says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. The idea is, is he was going to collect this offering, but he says, give based on how you've prospered. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, if, if you, you got a big paycheck, you give bigger. If you got a little paycheck, you give less. It's, a, it's proportional to your income. And he says, for everyone to whom much is given, this is Jesus, he says, from whom much will be required. Again, there's this understanding, right? And so uh, if you are making $10,000 a week, I'm trying to see if anybody got a reaction on now. No, okay. <laughs> if you're making $10,000 a week, um, then you, know, you should be giving quite generously because you prospered a lot. And if you're making $250 a week, you still need to give to God first. But it's not going to be very much, is it? Okay, because you didn't get much. And if, by the way, how, if, if you get $0 in, what is... I, I, let me make a recommendation. If you get $0 in, give 100% of it. Okay? All right. But we see this as proportional to the income. Now, so, so what kind of proportion is this? And by proportion, we're talking like a percent, right? A portion, a set portion of it. And, and so this is the idea. What you want to do between you and God, in fact, let's look at a scripture in Second uh, uh, Corinthians. He says, so let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart. Not gradually or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you and God spend some time together and you're praying about, God, what, what should this proportion be? What percentage should I give? But see, this is so important because you're setting this percentage before you know what your income is. You understand what, why that's important? You set this percentage, okay? And so here, it, here comes the income. So off the top, I'm going to give God this percentage. I've already settled it. I don't have to decide on Friday or Sunday morning or whatever. It's already settled. I've already figured this out, me and God. I've, 
And, and so, you know, he's put in my heart, this is what I'm supposed to give. And maybe that's 1%, 5%, 50%, whatever, you and God. If you are looking for a biblical example, and that's if you're saying, God, I, I, want to, I want to give proportionally, what should I do? What proportion or what percent should I use? And, and you start looking in the Bible and you find out, whoa, way back here in the very beginning, 700 years before the law, Abraham gives 10%. Hmm. And you find that repeated, and it's all through the law, and it's all through the prophets, and we get the New Testament, it's not specifically mentioned, but we must understand that, that many of, most of the converts, or the converts were Jews who were giving, most likely, 10%. And I would say to you that in the scriptures, we don't always see what the amount was or percentage, like in stories and things. We don't always see that. But there's never in the Bible when a percentage is actually given. And God, in the scriptures, expresses approval of that, that it's less than 10%. So if you're looking for a biblical, maybe more than that, by the way. Okay, we see examples of people doing more than that. But it's just never less than 10%. I would encourage you and challenge you to say, God, by faith, I'm going to take the example that you used and apply that here. But again, the reality is, is that the scripture says it's you, it needs to be in your heart. You need to settle this in your heart, whatever it is. You and God, settle that. And then do that. Now, can you already see how this begins to break the hold of money on your life? If your heart is to say, I want to do what God wants, and you're doing this, you're having to trust him. Because, once again, you know, okay, I'm giving to God. I'm, in fact, I'm going to give, say, 12%. And I'm going to give that to God, and I'm doing that. Uh, you know, no strings attached. Here it is, God, you know, to the church. And, and I'm giving it to you, Lord. I'm worshiping you in this way. What if my car breaks down this week? What am I doing when I'm giving this? I'm saying, God, I trust you to meet my needs. And if my car breaks down, you'll either fix it or you'll show me how to not have one. I'm trusting you, God. But this is, as Christians, we have to live as Jesus' Lord. So let me, let me move through the rest of these quickly here. This third one is still kind of connected. Uh, and it's give, if, give more if God leads you. And do so sacrificially if necessary. In other words, you're, you're, you're now living like this. You're giving off the top. You're, you're giving a percentage that you and God have settled on. And, uh, but all of a sudden you have this sense that you know, God's putting a desire in your heart to give to something. He wants you to give to, to missions. He wants, he, he, I, I want to give to the deacons fund to help my brothers and sisters when they have needs in their lives. Or I want to give money to feed some hungry kids so we can express the love of Jesus. I want to do those things. And, and so he puts it in your heart and you say, man, but I don't know how this fits in my budget, you know, because it's okay. You're considering your budget here. And you say, but well, you know what? I'm convinced God wants me to do this. And I, I was planning to buy a new car in a couple months, but you know what? I'll, it'll last in two more, and I'll do that. Uh, so some scripture here that helps us see. It says, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So nothing wrong with looking, saying, what am I able to do? But there are also times when this happens. Second uh, Corinthians, he says, they, talking about some poor people, they are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. 
For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They didn't have to do this. this is, but in their heart, they felt God wanted them to do it. And so they gave, and that was a sacrifice. And all I'm saying is this. I'm not going to tell you what you should give to or not or how much you should give. That's between you and God. But all I'm trying to say to you is if God puts it in your heart and you say, I need to do this, do it. Because what are we making sure? Who are we trusting? What are we trusting? We trust in our bank account? No, we're trusting God. Now, this does not mean be foolish. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, number four, become a generous person. We want to get beyond, okay, here's, here's just, oh, I give this or I give this and I don't give a penny more. Oh, you know, you have a friend who needs $5, you give it to him or, or a neighbor that you help out with something. You, you become a generous person. You see the difference, right? This is, this is we're building on this, these do's and activities to, wait, this is now who I am and what I'm like. I am now, I want to be a generous person. And some principles here says, but this I say, he who spares so sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is in the context of giving toward a need that other believers had. The generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. The idea of being a generous person, God blesses generosity. Okay, so this whole aspect of giving that and becoming a generous person we can really break the hold of what money and possessions can wrongly become in your life. So these are ways to guard against it. Real quick now, some other things. First, number five, avoid debt as much as possible. Avoid debt as much as possible. Proverbs says that the borrower is servant to the lender because what have you done? You've entered into an agreement. Now, I owe, I owe, off to work I go. I, I pay, right? I have to, I'm in a debtor relationship. I owe money I don't have, and I gotta pay it now. But Jesus said, and we read it, he says, no one can serve two masters. Now you're put in a position you gotta choose, okay? And so we don't want to be in debt. And what do we mean by being in debt? Here's what we mean by being in debt. You need to be able to pass what I call the key test, okay, the key test. just hang in there, okay? The key test. What this means is if I enter into an agreement where someone is loaning money, what I'm, borrow- what I'm buying has to be significant- worth significantly more than I owe. Okay? So if, if I, uh, you know, found a super deal, well, let's, nah, forget that. There are no super deals buying houses anymore. So but you go out and you buy a house. It's a $400,000 house. And, and you figure out how to borrow all the money. Okay? You buy, borrow $400,000. You can make the payments. You're not worried about it. And then the market changes. And that house isn't worth $400,000 anymore. It's only worth $320,000 now. But you still owe $390,000. You're what they call upside down, right? You see that? When you, but if you put down, say, 150000 and you only owe 250000 you're still, I said, but the idea is, at any point when that house is worth more than you owe, if you had to, you could give the keys, right? They don't like you for that. 
but you can give the keys, right? And, and there's enough value there to pay the debt. You know where this gets really hard? It's much harder on a car. You go buy a new car and you take advantage of, you know, their special deals and all this kind of stuff and you drive off the lot and the car probably immediately 10% less and by the end of that first year it's worth 20 to 30% less and, and it's happened to people. You have an accident and the insurance company pays it, they're going to pay it and you still owe money on the car. But you don't want to do that. You want to be in a position where that even if the car gets wrecked and the insurance company pays or if it doesn't, but you can't pay and, and God says, I want you to move to Africa and sell, you know. The thing is, if you had to, you can hand the keys to them because the car at that point is worth more than you owe. You see that? So the best way to deal with this is avoid debt as much as possible. And you get into a credit card deal. And I guarantee you, when you go buy that 80 four-inch, super high-def, 4K TV, and then you lose your job, and you tell the credit card company, uh, come get the TV, it's okay. Are they going to come get the TV? No. no, no. And now you are slave to the person that you owe money to. And Jesus says that doesn't work. You can't serve two masters, so uh, stay out of debt. After giving to God first, manage your money wisely so you can pay your bills both now and in the future. Uh, I, I don't need to talk about that. The Bible says that we should give people what we owe them, right? We've made it. We, we need to pay, okay? So we need to be wise. We do need to budget. Number seven, enjoy God's provision along the way. Go ahead, Oriya. Enjoy his provision along the way. He tells us to do that. He says, command those who are rich in the world what they ought to do, but he says, God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so it's not like this is some tedious, terrible hardship. No, it's God lets us enjoy things along the way. Um, and so we take that to heart. Let me, let me just end with this, this idea. When we let money become what God didn't intend for it to be in our lives, when we don't follow these practices and principles which he's given us to keep money from being that, we make a mistake. And he... he God uses an illustration with his people in Jeremiah when he says this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are we talking about, cisterns? The cisterns, especially in that part of the world where there's not a lot of rain, they need to catch all the rainwater they can. And, and so they have these systems where they get into a cistern. Oftentimes they're sort of underground or sheltered to slow down evaporation, but where they capture the water, okay? And it's the idea, it's saying, okay, if the people have a cistern and it's working and they say, oh, I don't want that one, I want a different one. And they go make their own and they don't make it well. And they've thrown away the good one and the one that they made leaks. And God says, that's what my people do with me sometimes. I've provided them what they need. I've, I've shown them how to do things. And they say no to me. They, they reject my cistern. Instead, they set up their own methods and their own ideas and do things their own way. When in reality, it won't work. Your ways are not better than God's ways. They aren't. All right. And so the idea is you had something that was perfectly good. And instead, you choose something that won't work. I mean, when we think about it that way, doesn't this just, I start to say illogical, but doesn't this seem, let's use a different word, doesn't it, look, doesn't it seem stupid? <laughs> but we can be guilty of it. So this last thought related to money. 
Okay. Money, like anything else, not surrendered fully to the Lordship of Christ, will do what you don't want it to do. And it won't do what you want it to do if it's not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. If instead you submit it to the Lordship of Christ, it won't do what you don't want it to do, and it will do what you want it to do. I hope I didn't confuse you with that last thing there. Get the idea? If we want to live a life that's worth living where when we stand before the Lord, we will be so glad we did and we will experience satisfaction and meaning and purpose here and now, we need to settle this issue in our lives. Jesus needs to be Lord of all our money and possessions. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd really challenge us, help us to look at our lives, Lord, and to see where we need to make some different choices here so that money in our lives is what you want it to be. And I'm going to trust you to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.